Hi, my name is Isabel, and I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast, brought to you by ESG Book. This year's UN Climate Summit, COP27, just wrapped up with a very tense ending and some big compromises. Looking back on these past weeks, what should we take away from this COP? And with us to talk about it is Alex Money, who was at Sharm El Sheikh. Alex directs the Innovative Infrastructure Investment, EN3 program, at uh, the University of Oxford Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. And as a former fund manager, he has over 20 years experience of fractionary experience in the investment and the industry and related to climate. So Alex, welcome. Thank you very much, Isabel. It's good to be here. So based on your experiences at COP27, what are some key takeaways for us that you would like people to bear in mind from this COP? Well, we're barely 24 hours, I think, after the last tired delegates uh, signed off on the last pieces of of documentation. So it's still, um, the dust is still settling, I think, a little bit. And, you know, if we look back at previous COPs, I think I think it's often in the days after the the event has ended that people have time to reflect and digest the not just digest the text, but just to start thinking through what the implications are practically in terms of what you know what this actually means. So I'd say we're a little bit early, honestly, to to be definitive about what has or hasn't come out of um, uh, out of COP uh, this year. I mean, the headlines are probably right in that the, the, the biggest breakthrough is almost certainly the creation, at least in terms of structure, of this loss and damages fund to support um, uh, d- developing countries in their, you know, in their activities. So that I'm sure is going to be important um, uh, and an enduring outcome beyond, you know, beyond these two weeks. And I'm sure it's true, you know, our, the UK's um, the UK's COP26 representative Alok Sharma was 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 talking a little bit about some of the things that just didn't really come off this time around, you know, with regard to well, the obvious things around commitments to levels of emissions, but then more specifically in terms of commitments around coal and oil and gas and so on. So I expect that the headline, um, you know, that the, the headline outcomes. Are, are what they are. I think. I think the. De- I think where the detail gets interesting, certainly for me, is thinking much more about practice in terms of this. You know, this this uh, loss and damages fund, for example, thinking through well, what happens between now. You know, sort of day one after that's been signed off, and you know, this time next year or this time in two or three years forward. You know, how how might we be able to start thinking about? What that looks like and how that works. So that's kind of an interesting thing to me. There were some other really specific things around. Um, you know, this was this was the first COP uh, in um, in Africa, obviously, and and it was quite interesting that the, the 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 representation of different delegates and representatives probably added a certain uh, unique uh, flavor to how we will think about outcomes from COP. And so there's some things in there that you know that that we, that we could talk a bit about, but yeah, I think I think if you know for me, I mean, I work I work principally around finance and investment related dimensions to these things, and so many of the things that have been interesting me around the modalities of getting things done in practice, you know, um, 
there are more questions, I think, from this COP to be answered around that. But at least there is something in place, I think, to make the the value in those conversations a bit higher. And then going further on like the action versus maybe some of the more abstract commitments that have been made. Yeah. Uh, previously, you addressed the concept of information asymmetry, the gap between financing what we actually need to realize climate adaption and what investors are actually interested in financing. Um, could you expand on that and how did you see that play out in practice? Um, where is this mismatch coming from, basically, in investor interest and, and what we actually need? Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, what I, you know, the, I mean, what I, what I, what I try to say about that is that there has for some time been the sort of narrative, right, which um, for, for providers of capital saying, well, look, actually, you know, cost of capital is low, risk appetite is there, we will, we have capital to make available for, for projects. But the problem that we're finding is that the projects that are available to us aren't bankable and so this is preventing this is somehow preventing us from making those loans and so and so the you know the 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 framing of that conversation is that we've got the billions the only the only quote unquote the only problem is that we don't have the projects to put it in and i i I think where that that story gets a little bit tired is you know these are the you know these are the realities the projects are the projects because this is what needs to be invested in if we're going to mitigate and adapt to the consequences of climate change. It's not, you know, it's, it's not that people can just pick and choose these fantastically high return achieving projects that then, you know, just perfectly map against what lenders want to lend against. The, 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 the you know, the, the, the challenge to be addressed is removing this information asymmetry, as I describe it, between what lenders think they want to loan against and what people need to have developed, you know, what infrastructure people need to have if they are to be um, safe, you know, or safe or be able to live in, you know, r- relatively good conditions going forward. So, so I, th- I think that that's the, the, the information asymmetry is, is really very specifically around whether people uh, are, are listening to each other or are acting on information that makes things possible or not, and if they're not, there's there's you know there's kind of no point to, to to repeatedly have this conversation that there's plenty of money available if only the projects aren't the you know the, the projects were there. The projects will be the projects that need to be invested in, and the and the money will be what it is. And so I think again, in in some ways, this um, uh, this this fund that's coming out that well. Let's see what happens. But in, in principle, this fund that will be developed as a consequence of agreements reached this week, this is kind of br- putting this problem on steroids in a way, right? So this is this is going to be creating uh, an institutional mechanism. I'm, I'm guessing, you know, we had no no one's seen the full details. An institutional mechanism to pool funds from rich countries, and then presumably there will need to be a deployment and disbursement mechanism baked into that. To enable projects to be invested in, and we've learned from existing initiatives that actually, you know, there's often quite high transaction costs, right? You you need to you need to figure stuff out. Often the projects themselves that are the most valuable, they don't suck up hundreds of billions of dollars. So it's quite easy to say, well, I'm just going to cut 
one massive check and the transaction costs are small and so it doesn't matter. Actually, it may be a more painstaking exercise, right? You may need to focus on the local, focus on what's needed, and you need mechanisms to be able to get that funding dispersed in the in the sizes that are relevant to the challenges in front of people and invested in a timely way. It's no good it's no good putting up these big funds and kind of dispersing them over fifty years when actually in the next five to eight years, you know, there's a real opportunity to to to, to influence this this process. So I think I think this, the information asymmetry challenge, which is is not new, and I'm not certainly not the first to talk about it. I think I think at the moment the the, the risk is that, that problem becomes more entrenched in some ways with this new um, with these new mechanisms. But if I, if I was to put the positive spin on that, there has never been a greater incentive than there is right now to figure out how to identify and lower those information asymmetries. And how does your research work, I would say, address this information asymmetry? Because I can imagine it's also a lack of precedence. Maybe some of the due diligence models or just, you know, in general, kind of financial forecasting on the return on investments might not be as equipped or appropriate for some of the projects that, that you're mentioning. Um, yeah, curious how your research ties into that. Yeah, so so, so there is no... There is no... Uh, there's no silver bullet, right? There's no silver bullet to the fact that transactions are complicated to do and often quite, you know, often have messy parts to them that need to be that need to be worked through. I, I and I certainly don't think that anybody is going to find a silver bullet to that. Things that have begun to work better is where within within uh, countries that are looking to deploy and invest these um, invest in projects. Is having is having more decentralized decision making that that stops that doesn't require central government to verify and approve every single thing to find ways in which either through provincial or district or anyway sub sub sovereign um, governance you're able to make decisions that are closer to the to the target users or or to, or to the target communities. Partly that improves accountability because you actually bring in more people who are invested in this decision-making process, and partly it helps um, it helps everybody kind of learn from specific cases of what's needed in different contexts and in different places to make things better. So that's kind of that's kind of the way that we we have been looking at things, and I, and I work at Oxford on a couple of programs, climate compatible growth program, for example, which is a multi-million dollar program funded in large part by FCDO, the UK government's um, development arm, uh, which is promoting thinking about these specific local contextual dri- driven operation, uh, opportunities. Um, there, are, there are also quite good learnings, I think, that come from seeing deployments in one place and figuring out what's been learned from that and, and, and doing that elsewhere. That still isn't really the way things are set up. Even at the COPs, for example, the I, I mean I think there was more interest this time than than previously in terms of like getting city mayors from different places in the global south to talk about their experiences. But probably when but that's probably still a conversation that's happening quite separately to the finance financing end of things. And I think I think there's probably opportunity to systematize how people approach things, where they've approached it well, and try and bring that insight back into 
uh, a format that helps lower transaction costs, for example, by improving templating. Uh, we worked in Southern Africa on lots of reverse auction programs for utility scale solar, for example, which which helped reduce the um, re- reduce the cost of you know the, the cost of procurement. So I, I think I think there are specific examples. I, th- I think it's very difficult to generalize, but I think it's fine. It's fine to have specific examples. It's better to have that than to have nothing, and it's certainly better to have that than to make out like the only solution is to have a silver bullet, which stops anything from happening. Yeah, yeah. And then going back to this cop. What, in your mind, should investors look out for relating to transition finance? And, for example, how can we better align the incentives of transitioning corporates and those who finance them? Just going back to the fact that there's no silver bullet. Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good and difficult question, Isabel. I, I mean, I think the... Let, let me let me do it by way of a couple of examples. I think I think let's let let's take let's take re- renewables and let's take um, well let's take let, I mean let's take utility scale solar or, or solar more general. So we know we know that the we know that the rate of uh, deployment uh, and the cost of these and the cost of deployment rates of deployment are going up. Cost of deployments are going down. We also know these are self self reinforcing things. So the more deployment there is, the faster costs fall. The faster costs fall, the more that triggers deployment. Uh, one of the things that's been interesting is to notice that um, you know the, the drivers to bring down costs are normally R and D intensive, right? And so and so that different different countries at different points seem to lead the momentum there and then and then that keeps moving around i think the real opportunity but but most of that technology has generally been driven by the global north and china and 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 then, and then and then it's been kind of deployed i think where things are really interesting there is that we might see particularly as levelized costs keep keep falling we might see quite significant increases in deployment in a few significant economies in the global south over the next one or two years and because of that significant deployment, that will be catalytic in terms of where it breaks through to different price levels that then triggers the opportunity in, you know, in that next group of countries for whom the cost equivalent is still pretty significant. So I think whereas before technology driven principally by the global north and China and India and elsewhere has been really important to that sort of catalytic change in driving transitions, I think what we might see now or increasingly see now is um, sort of critical mass being hit for rapid at scale deployment in in more places that then creates this whole new level of momentum um, into you know into countries which up till now have had quite you know relatively low penetration of uh, you know non non fossil fuel uh, generation. So so that's kind of my hope. Um, and and there's there's examples of that that was coming out of COP and talking to project developers and where they see the opportunities. You know there are there are this whole bunch of secondary and primary cities. Uh, you know in many parts of the world, in in Africa, as you know, the population today about a billion. Twenty fifty, it'll be about two billion. Now that's a one hundred percent, one hundred percent increase in population. In less than a generation, right? And so I think, if you think through what the implications are of that in terms of um, latent potential to consume uh, 
um, energy and so on and so forth. You, you you get a sense as to why this whole deployment story could be really, not just really important, but really significant as the catalyst that actually then leads to these transitions. Right. And do you have a few examples of regions where you see this or cities in Africa, for example, where you can really see this play out? Uh, well, within Africa, where, I, where, where I'm where I'm doing work, princi- principally in places like Zambia, we, we've seen we've seen the introduction of utility scale uh, programs over the last five, six, seven years, uh, which you know, and some of them have worked okay. Some of them are still you learn each time about how to make these things better. There are still often challenges, as you as you know, with regard to off takers and utilities and their capacity to their capacity to kind of fund and finance these things. But generally, but generally speaking, and again, this is where I think potentially this fund as it gets, as it gets set up could be really important because if it helps, um, if it helps, you know, give a shot in the arm to utilities, which have often have competent, really good people within the organization, but are just carrying a historic legacy of indebtedness, which means that their own credit ratings aren't good enough to, get stuff done you know if if there is a way with some of these investments that credit enhancements at scale are being provided to um you know to to utilities and off takers i think those are the ways in which we'll see uh not just not just the growth in solar home systems and off grid and and all of that stuff which is you know which, which, which is all important but also how we'll see you know, productive energy use growth through um, expansion of the transmission networks, for example, and then um, adjusting to all those things about putting intermittent energy onto the system and managing baseload and, you know, all, all the all these things. So, so I think there's a really, it's really cool, right? It's, if, 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 if as, as, as I understand what some of these funds can start doing, is to kind of cut that knot that is still sits in between good cheap technology and and rapid access and and deployment that lump in the middle which is well how do you actually get uh how do you actually get the stuff operationalized and uh it, you know it, it could very well be that if some of this money is used in an effective and targeted way that's going to open up that possibility that's interesting so as a concluding question every cop there's new initiatives or commitments or at least, you know, stated intentions. What is the most important issue that you think will return for the next COP28? Huh. Well, you know, you know, Isabel, they're big, they, they describe them as big COPs and little COPs. And this is one of the, you know, this is kind of one of the intermediary ones between the big announcements. I, I, I think somebody, somebody described this to me, you know, as the, I mean, cops are like performative events, right? They are they are the they are the two weeks when all these people get together and do their thing. But we should never lose sight that I mean, what what the cops are are really just milestones in a whole bunch of different initiatives that involve a lot of people working pretty hard every day in trying to advance different agendas. And 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 actually, the cops are just what we see at the cops are you know. The the, 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 the the protocols being signed. So I think they serve a really valuable purpose in bringing people together and also in helping to in helping to hold some of these groups to to account because that does happen that does happen be, be, be behind the behind the big scenes. 
so I expect next year, you know, some of those initiatives that that we've seen, particularly around um, uh, this 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 initial work on loss and damages, which is now becoming socialized as an idea, y- you would hope that a, an understanding of what that means in terms of just transitions has begun to cascade out of the out of the language of of particular groups and more widely understood by you know, by stakeholders who can actually put money behind it and do certain things. So for, so for me, that would be a really a really great achievement would be to have a better understanding of how some of the social and societal and environmental consequences of decisions made in the past are, are now have a mechanism to be reflected fairly in terms of decisions being made in the future. That would be my, my big hope, I think. Um, and then, of course not to bring it up a third time, but then, of course, just to see whether these challenges around information asymmetry and getting things done in the right way, whether having created this new mechanism, uh, does that help give the momentum to do things a bit better, you know, to do things a bit differently? Because we all know that the status quo in terms of rates of deployment of investment and so on are, are just really just not not where they need to be. But we need to be optimistic that momentum exists to do things better and that is you know it's on all of us whatever roles we play within that ecosystem to try to you know try to support this uh, this outcome right so next year it will be a lot of testing some of the commitments and testing the mechanisms as we have more data to to see where it is viable and where we need to make more uh, more adjustments and improve better yeah well thanks a lot alex really really appreciate you joining us um, oh, my pleasure. Great. Yeah. So this podcast is created with my colleagues, Min and Livia. Um, if you want to know more about Alex's research, we'll put a link to Alex's work in the show notes. And um, thank you all for listening. <laughs>